You know, one thing is clear as we read this second half of the chapter. It's that you can never predict what God is going to do. You know, this chapter begins with Jesus alone being tempted by himself in the wilderness. And the chapter ends with him surrounded by people, proclaiming God's word, ministering in an incredible way to people from all over the world in this area of Jews and Gentiles alike. It ends in a way we wouldn't have predicted the way the chapter begins. And, you know, we ought to be prepared for God to surprise us like this. You know, it, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It wasn't even on my radar to be here with you guys. And, but the Lord had a plan. And I, I just checked my calendar. Coming up next month, I'll be here a year. Caught me off guard, too. <laughs> but praise be to God for it. And it truly has been a wonderful, fruitful time for me. And I pray it's been for you as well. But, you know, in many other ways, you know, God has done amazing things in this time, too. I mean, I think of the incredible work that God has done in the food pantry, that our little food pantry at this church became this, this major emergency food bank for this region, for this area. Giving out how many tens of thousands of bags of food this last year? Tens of thousands? 47,000. 47,000. Wow. That's... Only God could have predicted that. If you had said that to us this time last year, we all would have said, what? But now, God often has a bigger vision than we could even wrap our minds around for what is possible. And I'm grateful to be a part of what God is doing here. And this truth that God can do greater than we could imagine is true even from the opening lines of this section as we pick up again in verse 12, that says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You know, it is amazing to me that as soon as John the Baptist is arrested for, for again, basically just for calling out the corrupt government of his time for their sins, immediately Jesus goes to minister to the same people. Moving into the same region John the Baptist was ministering in. You can't stop what God has ordained to prosper. What God's plans are cannot be undone. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, he promised. And isn't it encouraging to see those truths so clear, even, even in our world today? I mean, you think about it. Where are the places of the greatest persecution of biblical Christianity? You got North Korea, you have Iran, you got Communist Party of China, and lo and behold, that's where the three fastest growing churches in the, in the world are this day. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. The government comes in and crushes one secret underground church and ten more pop up. It's amazing what God is doing out there. Some of the stories are just mind-blowing. 
Charles Wesley said that God buries his workmen, but carries on his work. So moving forward, Jesus is now ministering in Galilee of the Gentiles, it says. Being called that for their large Gentile population, despite being in Israel. And this was true even back to Isaiah's time, 700 years prior to Jesus' coming. And Matthew notes that this is no coincidence, as the prophet Isaiah said the Messiah would dwell there. And these Gentiles, walking in darkness, walking in a place devoid of the light of Scripture, devoid of this place of the knowledge of God, on them this light has dawned. This light that we now know to be the light of the world, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, in their region. That is a powerful light. And that's an encouragement to me as well. As we go through this world that we all can agree is growing increasingly dark, that the light of the world is still shining brightly. And where the gospel goes, we bring that light with us. And... What was Jesus' message to this population of Jews and Gentiles? He tells us in verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that might sound familiar to some of you guys, as it's basically a cut and paste of Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. It's the same thing, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Except one of these has red letters and the other is black. The message Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 4 is the same message John the Baptist was bringing in Matthew chapter 3. Again, the only difference is being the red letters. You know, it's funny, I work very closely with uh, my pastor. And I used to call myself his 80-20 guy. And I say that meaning I knew what he was doing about 80% of the time. The other 20%, only God knows. And funny enough, you know, I would categorize that as a great relationship. You know, I've worked in places where I understood what my boss was doing maybe 20% of the time. That did not go over well. But I don't see that between Jesus and John the Baptist. They are in 100% agreement with their message. In fact, all throughout Scripture, I see the same thing. The biblical authors were on point with each other 100% of the time. There's a harmony between the book of Genesis and the book of John. There's a harmony between Galatians and James. Uh, It's the same message. Let's not take for granted how profound that is. I mean, think about it. I couldn't get 40 people from the warehouse I used to work for, to agree on anything. I couldn't get get them to agree on anything, much less politics and religion. And yet, 40 human authors were used by God to compile the scriptures we all have in our pews and in our laps. And yet, there is no contradiction between any of their messages. They all harmonize together over something as controversial and divisive as what we call religion. I say that's God's fi- proof of God's fingerprints on the process. Proof that God was doing something in all of it. You know, it's been said that Jesus is a radical, which is largely true. 
Jesus was completely at odds with his contemporaries and the leaders of Israel at that time. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who put him on the cross for having such sharp disagreements with him. And to this day, his teachings are radical and hard to accept even in our Western culture, if we're honest. Think about it. We got, he said things like, love your enemies. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He had discontentment with religious and political hypocrisy. And he preached reconciliation of sinners to God and to each other. You don't see too many places other than the church proclaiming those messages. You turn on the news and you see divisions and you see basically the opposite of a lot of these things being proclaimed. However, while it is true that Jesus was radical into the culture he was teaching into, his teachings are not radical through the lens of Scripture. His teachings are not at odds with the Old Testament. He didn't bring anything new in that sense. Let me, uh, let me clarify that, actually. He didn't come to abolish the Levitical law. He came to fulfill it. The incredible moral teachings we're going to be reading about it when we begin the Sermon on the Mount in the next chapter, they have their roots in the Old Testament. Jesus just brought a clarity to them that we couldn't see before. Showing what these things really mean. And again, what was his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word repent, meaning to have a change of heart towards God. We covered this in the last chapter, that meaning I was going this way with my life, and I was making the decisions for me, and now I'm going this way. You know, I'm letting God direct me now. I'm living my life for him, not for myself. My actions were going this way, and now I'm going this way. Sometimes this way, or that way, but this is the general direction I'm moving in. And why repent? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, meaning the same thing. It's the same term used in different gospels. But that's God's kingdom. Anywhere he is ruling. He's ruling in our hearts now, in the hearts of believers. And his kingdom is still yet to come. The earthly kingdom to come of Christ. And the eternal kingdom yet to come in the future. All of that means God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God. So, with that in mind, what is his point? What is he driving at? He's saying, change your heart. He's saying, change your mind towards God. Because his kingdom is at hand now and is to come. And since we don't know when his coming will be, we ought to be prepared. We ought to have our hearts right towards God. This was Jesus' main objective as a teacher. To proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, as he said in verse 23. Everything else was secondary to Jesus. See, Jesus' primary ministry wasn't to give, was not to give food to the poor, even though that's what he did. His primary ministry wasn't to heal the sick, even though he absolutely did that. He came to minister to our greatest need, not just the physical, 
but our spiritual needs. Our spiritual needs. Does Jesus care about our physical needs? Of course he does. That's why at a later time it said that Jesus saw these crowds and he had compassion on them. And then he goes and feeds the over 5,000. Because he cares, because he has compassion. But he also warned us that if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into heaven with one hand than to have both hands and be cast into hell. Is Jesus saying we should cut off our hands? No. Your right hand doesn't cause you to sin. The heart does. The heart causes us to sin. Our sinful hearts. And that's exactly why we need a new heart. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Isaiah 1, God tells us, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. So yes, our hearts are sinful. But God is going to give us a new heart to those who call upon his name this morning. To those who say, I am a sinner and I need your salvation. Who aren't trusting in our own works to work our way up to God, but accepting the hand that God is reaching down to us for. If you haven't given your heart to Jesus this morning, he will begin a work in you that you won't believe in due time. You know, it's much like what my surgeon did on my back a few weeks ago. You know, I didn't perform the surgery on myself. I didn't do any of the work. All I did was sign the consent forms. I give you permission to do your work in me. That's all that Jesus asks of us. Will you let me work on you? So the main point Jesus is driving at is that this eternal things like this are more important than the temporary things. So yes, hunger is horrible and deserves our compassion and directs us all throughout the Old and New Testament to do such. But it's temporary compared to the eternal element of being separated from God. The reason Jesus came to earth was not to make this earth a better place, but to die on the cross so that all who believe in his message would have access to that better place. That is the message of the kingdom and Jesus' greatest priority as a teacher. So yes, let's feed the poor. Let us help the oppressed. Let us face and conquer injustice when we see it. But if we've neglected to tell them the good news of what Jesus has done for them, we've only accomplished a fraction of what we're capable of giving someone. Because he can give some, but he, can, he gives us far more than what we can give away materially, no matter how much we have. So I'm going to pick up the pace as we pick up our narrative in verse 18 that says, when, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And, were go and going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and uh, his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
You know, this wasn't Jesus's first encounter with this men, with these men. It's clear from the context that this was a kind of an abridged version of it. You know, getting to the main points. While John chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5 give a much more detailed account if you want to dig into that. But what does show, what this passage does show us, is Jesus is asking them to make a commitment. You know, we've all had encounters with Jesus. The question is, are we committed to him? You know, we could all be having, we're all having an encounter with God right now. Encountering his word, hearing it being proclaimed, singing these hymns that are rooted in scripture. That, that uh, I grew up in this church encountering Jesus all the time in the Sunday school and the youth group at the time. And those are all wonderful things. I am for encounters with Jesus. But eventually the Holy Spirit pressed on my heart that it was time to make a commitment to him. And I pray that you too have had that moment where Jesus is pressing on your heart, saying the same thing he said to these disciples, follow me. And that we will in too respond as he calls us. And he tells these fishermen that they will be made fishers of men. He's inviting them to be part of a bigger mission than they are currently being a part of, merely than their day jobs. And calling these men especially to follow him, to be his disciples, to, to physically walk with him. But Jesus, in turn, also calls us to follow him where we are. Wherever we are. You know, you don't have to quit your day job to follow Jesus. You know, when, uh, when I first r- responded to that commitment, you know, I, was, I had a job and I was a full-time student. So I was busy then. And even, even now, I still have my day job. And getting to do what I do here. You don't have to quit your day job to follow Jesus. But let me tell you, when you first taste the wonder of being part of something bigger than yourself, being a part of working for eternal things, it changes you. Man, I I remember that first time where I was just having a conversation about Jesus with another college student at the time. And when I was there, when he said, yes, you know what? I do want to be a Christian. I, I, I believe what you are telling me. Can you pray with me? And just praying with this guy, watching him go through what the Bible says is going from darkness to light. Oh, man, that changed me. Oh, that put just such a hunger in my heart. It was, um, it, it gave me such a different perspective. Because, you know, and, and those of you who know what I'm talking about know that after that, it's like, man, that business contract I was working on just doesn't feel as big as it used to. Those of you who have gone on missions trips have come back feeling, feeling less like the daily problems we go through out here in the West just aren't as important as we thought that they were. It gives us a different perspective. But since my time is gone from us, I'm going to go on to this last section where finally the crowds start to get bigger in verse 23. And when... And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. 
And great crowds followed him from, the, from Galilee and from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. You know, it reminds me of the conclusion of the gospel according to John, where John writes and says, you know, if all the things that Jesus did were recorded and written down, there wouldn't be enough room in all the books in all the world to document all the things that Jesus has done. And when you read a passage like this, we begin to understand how that could be true. You know, B.B. Warfield once wrote that disease and death must have been almost eliminated for a brief season from that region. Oh man, what a sight that would have been to see. How cool that would have been to be there and to see all of this just being wiped out. Jesus is essentially undoing the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Because we see there, that was the beginning of sorrows. There wasn't pain, suffering, or sorrow before sin. The Bible's clear about that. And that sin is the cause of diseases, our pain, our suffering. It traces back to sin. And we can't even blame this on Adam because we all have sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And now here is Jesus as he's going through this region, wiping out the effects of all of that, taking away all of these afflictions of all different kinds, showing us and creating this small snippet of Israel where there is no more pain, no more suffering. How amazing that would have been to have seen. And my joy is that one day we will all see that those of us who call upon his name. As on the other side of this life, there is a place with no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, except the ones that Jesus will wipe from our eyes in the presence of our King. And as we work towards our conclusion this morning, I I touched on this at Easter, so I'm not going to go into length here, but these miracles are confirming his message. Our first reading in John chapter 7, one person said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? He's saying, wow, could anybody do more than what Jesus is doing? Could anybody possibly do more signs and more miracles than this man? Essentially confirming that, no, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Messiah, the Son of God the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of this world, they're confirmed by, the, by this incredible, incredible, unreplicable miracles that he's doing. And naturally, this draws a huge crowd. People wanting to see this man. Here it must be hearing these stories spreading throughout all the region of this man who is just wiping out sin and disease and death and needing to see it for themselves. And in this crossroad area of Jews and Gentiles, believers and skeptics, these crowds and congregation, or these crowds begin to form a congregation sitting before Jesus that would be present for the greatest sermon of all time that we're going to begin looking at next week. Don't miss the next couple of weeks. This is going to be exciting. Thanks be to God. Amen.